Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Andrew Tsai, the chief investment officer of Chalkstream Capital Group, which he founded in 2003 to manage the assets of quant guru Peter Muller. Andrew's fascinating background started on Lehman's ARB desk in the early 1990s, after which he formed a quantitative hedge fund in 1997, built a dot-com logistics business in 1999, and led the turnaround of a private equity-backed business thereafter. He combined his wide range of skills to focus on investing at Chalkstream. Our conversation walks through the stories and lessons from Andrew's background and turns to Chalkstream. His investment program is the opposite of asset allocation, emphasizing deep dive research, concentrated themes in niche spaces, low beta, long tails, and culture. We close by fleshing out examples of Chalkstream's themes in Japan and in electricity trading. Please enjoy my conversation with Andrew Sai. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me. Ted, good to see you. Thank you. How'd you first get interested in investing? When I was in college, I went to Wharton undergrad, and most of my cohorts, the job to get was being an investment banking analyst. And back then it was like DLJ, it was Goldman, it was Solly, and that never seemed to really appeal to me. Why? When you go to the interviews and you talk to people what they do, you know, they say, look, um, it's going to suck, <laughs> right? And you're going to come here, you're going to work your, your, your butt off. You're not going to really do anything. And, and I have no problem with working my butt off, but, but towards something productive. So that, that was my impression, right or wrong. And I was fortunate that I got my first summer internship with Susquehanna. And this is right at the fourth inning of their trajectory. And it was in Chicago, and it was a foreign currency joint venture at Chase Manhattan for foreign currency options. Well, the interview process, right, is all about statistics and math and like, you know, game theory and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, okay, these, these guys are my guys. And I knew I liked them when first week of the job, they say, okay, we're, we're meeting downstairs, bus is taking us at four o'clock. I'm like, what do you mean four o'clock? We're going on a field trip, the whole company. So get on the bus, we go to the dog races. So outside of Chicago, <laughs> famous for dog racing. We go there. So I'm, I'm in the bus and I'm sitting next to one of the partners and I'm looking at the sheet, right, of all the races. And he's like, so how are you going to bet? I'm like, uh, I don't know. Like, I've never really done this before, but this dog looks like he's got a good track record. You know, he's run strong recently. And the guy looked at me like I was a complete idiot. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, what are you talking about? how's this dog doing? I'm like, well, isn't that kind of what we're betting on? It's like, well, look at the relative value between this dog and that dog. And they started talking about spread trading and, and, and kind of trying to capture that, that basis. And I'm like, these are my guys. Yeah. <laughs> these are my guys. <clears throat> so it really was like this, this culture of, of dissection that, that I loved. So you did the summer job with them and then you go back to school. So how did that change how you thought about coming out of college? I went back. I took actually a semester off my junior year to go back. And then I worked on the mercantile exchange. 
And that was in the pits, the S&P 500 option pits. And, and to me, this was the most primal, visceral form of trading, right? Open outcry. Open outcry. I still have my hand signals. I still, like, when I see my buddies, I'm like, hey, you know, buy us, you know, three beers and I'll make the three signal, right? And it's visceral, right? Because it's like person wins, person loses, and you, you're looking at that person. And so it was a real understanding of, of what was going on kind of at a very base level. And um, Was that with Susquehanna? It wasn't with Susquehanna. Okay. It, was, it was with the smaller bank, uh, futures broker in Chicago. Okay. And... And what's interesting is that you'd hear the hushes come when they'd say, oh, yeah, you know, Morgan Stanley is about to come in with a big order and it's it's Tudor, right? And I'd say, how do you know it's Tudor? They go, we just kind of know. We, you know, and so I'm like, then you'd hear it and the whole pit would be quiet and all of a sudden you'd hear, ah, and it'd be just <laughs> craziness, right? And then you'd hear another day and it'd be like, we think it's Caxton coming in to sell, right? So it'd be all this stuff. And I was like, man, who are these people? What are they doing? And they seem to have this kind of revered status. And so went back to school and started studying about different hedge fund managers and actually wrote my senior year thesis on how to set up a hedge fund. And this is? This is 1992. 1992. Early days. And then so you called Stevie Cohen and you helped him set up in 92. <laughs> I wish. I wish. So wrote that thesis. And thesis is way too strong of a word. I wrote my, my senior year project on, on setting up a hedge fund. And that was the bug. And then I started studying one strategy after another. And my brilliant master plan at the time was trying to figure out what is the most complicated strategy right now. And this is, again, going back to 92. And it seemed like, to me, it was fixing income arbitrage. And so I was reading about like the Sally Bond Arb desk and all these types of folks. Yeah. And so that's where my focus went. And so I was lucky because there weren't many people coming out of school saying, I want to work on a fixed income arbitrage desk. And so I was one of the few kind of nutheads who, who wanted to do that. And get, with the Susquehanna background, was able to get an offer at Lehman Brothers in their fixed income arbitrage group. And, and that was the beginning for me in finance. And what did it look like trading on a fixed income desk back then? So different. So different. You had, stepping back, you walk on the trading floor, it's different than today. But back then, it was hard not to be in awe. You could feel the momentum. You could feel the energy, right? This is before electronification. This is when there were big personalities. You know, you were in the transition period between the lacrosse team players who are these aggressive old school traders, right? Yeah. And then kind of the beginning of the quants. And my first boss at Lehman was was kind of one of the, the wave of, of kind of early quants to come in to say, hey, let's use some computing power and let's really study these relationships between cash and swaps and TED spreads and basis trading. And, and, and again, going back to my Susquehanna days, it wasn't about like, hey, is the bond going up or down? Like, who knows? You know, in, in 94, by the way, when the Fed, the, the surprise rate hike and kind of vast, it was all kinds of mayhem imprinted on me that there's some things out there that are bigger than any kind of given given view of the markets. So that kind of confirmed my Susquehanna view on kind of relative value, but it, but it looked, to your question, it looked really different. There was a tremendous amount of energy. It was this exciting shift where technology was just coming in, larger than life characters, right? I mean, those Liars Poker was written, I think, a couple of years prior to that. That left a big impression on me as well. How long did you stay on the desk? 
So I was at Lehman for about five years, and I was on the desk the whole time. They sent me to London two years later in 95, and I focused on the European bond markets, specifically German bond markets. And that was a really interesting time for, for German government bonds. This is when Alan Howard was running it for Tokai and then Credit Suisse and kind of saw what a true trader was and is. And what do you mean by that? He was exceptional. And you don't really know exactly. You're not on the same desk, but you see the types of trades. You know, I, I'd worked with people that had worked with them before at Sali. And so you get a sense of the discipline, the tenacity, the kind of differentiation. You know, there's not that many traders on the street today that have that kind of persona because they've all gone to hedge funds or done other things. But back then, it was an amazing time, right? There were periods where you could do kind of negative swap spreads. There were times when you had people paying you to, to own a basis, which is paying you to own an option on, on delivery. Crazy stuff. And you had the whole beginning of the euro process, right? So you had a big convergence trade on yields all over the place, and you're having a little bit of deconvergence now. <laughs> and when you would see those types of trades, like negative basis trade, free option, massive convergence in currencies. Could you tell who was on the other side of it to get conviction that this thing that doesn't make mathematical sense is worth the trade? You had a sense, right? Because being, being on the street, you had a sense of what institutional flows are doing. So you had, a, you had a sense. My question was always like, how does it get here? And then you say, like, well, you know, this central bank's moving, you know, kind of big into this part of the curve for this reason. You start understanding from the salespeople what their objectives are, their clients' objectives are. So you start kind of putting together a rough, and I say rough because you don't really know, rough framework on kind of what's going on. And it kind of gives you some comfort that, okay, you know, there's a reason that happened and, and perhaps there's a reason that will revert at some point. So as you ascended or went through your couple of years on the street, at some point in time you leave. What was the impetus for leaving? It really is about going back to that thesis, that senior thesis. And that was kind of always my, my dream and vision to be on the buy side. And it was nothing about Lehman. I actually still to this day love Lehman. Some of my best friends in the world are from Lehman. You'll see, you'll see behind me in my office a certificate of Lehman up on the wall, which is when I left, I, I sold all my shares, which looked really dumb for about 10 years and then looked okay. But I kept one share. And back then you could get a certificate. And to me, it's a reminder of what can go wrong. And it doesn't matter how established, how big of a brand you have, things, things can go bad if you're not careful. To your question, I always wanted to go to the buy side. And my kind of infinite wisdom age of, at this point, I'm 26, decide that no, now's the time to set up a hedge fund. And partnered with someone who's still my best friend in the world today. And, and, and he was at Goldman Sachs. And we left together with a few other partners and set up uh, Integrity Capital. And this was in, in 97. What kind of fund was that? So this was one of the first spinoffs from the Global Alpha Fund at GSAM. So quantitative, quantitative, yeah. long value, short growth, multiple asset classes. And my good friend and partner, Ross Stevens and Cliff Asnes had set up the original uh, Global Alpha Fund at GSAM and, and, and Ross decided to split off and I decided to join him in, in building this business. And again, it wasn't directly related to what I was doing at Lehman Brothers, which is you know more fixed income uh, arbitrage trading, but it was kind of the next iteration on, on applying quantitative methods to markets. And I was really excited at that point to expand into equities and, and commodities and volatility and other asset classes. So yeah. it, was, it, was, it was a great opportunity. And so this is 97 and a year later, some of the spread trades didn't probably work out as you thought they might. 
Yeah. So now this is part of the story where we start learning that, you know, okay, maybe we don't know everything at the age of 27. <laughs> and, and, and you and I have talked about this a lot, you know, like I'm 47 now and it's like the older I get, the more I feel like I don't know. Yeah, right? exactly. But at that time, I still feel like I know everything. And, and at 27, I'm starting to doubt that a little bit. And what you kind of see is that, you know, kind of correlations can, can really go to one. So long-term capital, Blew up in 98, and they were so levered into so many different things that relationships that you can do the math till the cows come home, and it will say that it doesn't make sense, but it doesn't matter. You're wrong. And so that was a really, really important lesson to me on when things go bad, they can go much worse than you expected. And things can really happen that that don't make sense. And it doesn't matter if it makes sense or not, because you're not around to take advantage of the other side. And what did that do to your business at the time? Well, we shut down. Yes. So we ran it for two years and we had we had fantastic investors and you know our anchor investor was Pete Muller who's my partner here at Chalkstream. Yeah. We had fantastic investors and it was it was a tough time and we decided to to give the money back and at that time maybe there was a word that was less popular but quant was probably you know top 3 least popular words for 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 allocators. Yeah. So we'd done really well in 97 and gave it all back in 98 so it wasn't a, a disaster but it was it was certainly a disaster in, in 98. So if you look back AQR started at around the same time and similarly had a pretty rough start for the same reasons. What was it at that time that had you decide, you know, we should wind this down and they sort of clearly kept going and ascended from there? Yeah, it's a great question. And I have such tremendous respect for AQR and what they've built. And if you think about the different paths, right, they start and they go right into the 98 drawdown, yep. right? So the same drawdown we went into and it was, it was, it was an ugly time. And they were like all of us, assets were, were flowing the other way. It was going to be very hard to raise capital, new capital in the space. And they did an amazing job of, of holding on to enough assets. And it was still, you know, that long value short growth was also, remember, 99 wasn't really, that was really fun, right? Because that was when every tech stock was kind of flying through the roof. And that took out some some other big kind of fundamental value managers. But then when the markets corrected, all of a sudden, long value short growth looked really, really good for, for many years. And so that experience and kind of how AQR was able to stabilize is, is maybe my one bullet point for being in the asset management business, which is stay in business. If you believe in your strategy, if you believe in your team, what is the X factor that you need? You need duration of capital because you need to be around those times. And every decade, there's maybe one or two opportunities where there actually is lower hanging fruit and it is easier to make returns, but you got to be there. Yeah. And you need to be in business. And they did an amazing job of, of crowding their, their investors and their team, right? Because you need both. You need the team to stay. You need the investors to stay. You got to have a sense of humor, and Cliff's got one of the best sense of humors in the world. Yeah. And I think that's that's part of the secret sauce is is how do you keep an environment to keep it a little bit light when it looks really really bad? And I think they did a great job of that. And I think that lesson to me is really really important, and, and one of the reasons why you know parting with Pete and, and Chalkstream was important because I really wanted a foundation of capital that that could really be very very long tailed. Yeah. So we're going to get into that, but I know at the ripe age of twenty seven, you took a. A little bit of a divergent path from asset management. There was this dot-com thing going on. So why don't you tell that story? Yeah, it's funny. Everything kind of comes around because like the dot-com, you know, we, we built the same-day delivery service called Urban Fetch. And this was built effectively with, with the team we had in our hedge fund. How did you go from 
the hedge fund to local it, delivery? It was really simple. We had a team full of PhDs that we really liked and respected, and we were shutting down our hedge fund. And it was a lesson in how do we keep the band together? Like, what do we do? Like, this is a good team, right? And we believe in the strategy. We just thought that at the time it was going to be hard to kind of raise money for, for Quan. But we thought that how do we keep this team together? And at the time, there was so much going on in technology. And we're li- all living in New York City, all dealing with the lack of convenience and, and lack of delivery. And to us, it actually was just a fascinating optimization question, right? So the geeks and us came out and it's, it was basically, okay, if you've got X number of warehouses, Y number of orders and Z number of delivery people, how do you do that? So it's actually a fascinating question, right? Logistics and, and operation management. And it was kind of, it wasn't that much of a segue from the team we had. And so we started building up that team and we built up this business. We raised a bunch of money from venture capitalists. What was the capital people. raising like then? You know, it was, I would imagine it's similar now. You know, I don't know because I haven't raised money uh, from venture capitalists in a while, but there were fewer of them, but it was equally crazy. It was, you know, you go into a room and you would do your pitch and, you know, and I just come from the hedge fund industry where they're like, okay, we're going to do seven more meetings, 10 more obsidually meetings, and then we'll consider you, right? And and the VC space back then was was basically like, okay, nice to meet you. Pitch your idea. They're like, "Mm, we'll get back to you tomorrow, but I think we're likely to do something. We're like, (laughs) so we walk out of the meeting, we're like, what? Like, really? Like, we just... And this was just a bunch of smart guys and an idea. Yeah, it was kind of an eye opener to a whole nother space. And and the money was flowing. And I actually went back to London to set up the London operations. And just from a life lesson, from a business lesson, it was a fascinating experience, right? Because you think about everything up till then, I'm dealing with highly trained, highly educated finance people that are motivated, that are working their ass off, et cetera, et cetera. And now we've got delivery people. We've got factory kind of logistics folks. We've got the PhDs and they all have different motivations and different ways. And you need to figure out different ways to inspire and motivate them. So that was a a really important lesson in in kind of how to manage different types of people. And so what was the trajectory of that business? Again, so you start your hedge fund in 97, you had a little bump in 98, you start Urban Fetch in, was it 99? Um, Yeah, 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 exactly. In that time period. Maybe 2000. It's a little bit of a capital raising bump. It was similarly volatile in a different way, right? You had the kind of volatile explosion. And, and you know, our company went from a handful of people to, I don't know, we probably had 700 employees at our, at our peak, right? Because we had, had tons of delivery people, warehouse people, not, not all full time. But in, in London, we had probably 150 people. You know, it was big operations and big management and, and kind of decent money raised. And this was, there's so many lessons and yeah. kind of in, well, in, in let's, this. Let's go through the story a little bit because I remember the company. So the concept was just local delivery of, was it retail? The concept was one hour delivery. And so it was basically Amazon one hour. And in fact, if you look at the old snapshots, which I'm sure are floating on the web somewhere of kind of the, the, the page, had a striking similarity to Amazon. <laughs> and the difference was you click and it got delivered to you within an hour. And, and so that was the business that people knew, like the retail B2C business. What people, most people didn't know, unless you were kind of in the company or one of our investors, was, was the B2B model, which was third-party logistics. We actually ran third-party logistics for online delivery for some big companies that wanted to have a fulfillment agent into same-day delivery service. And again, like, it's all about keeping in business long enough. I mean, you know, I think our family has 
10 boxes from Amazon every day hit our doorstep, right. you know, from a uh, something like a, a toothpaste, unfortunately, to, to something more substantial. So that the concept is really, but, but for us, it was, it was really, the retail business was about getting enough traction and awareness to really blow out third-party logistics because that's where we thought the real opportunity was. And that was a fascinating duality in terms of the B2B and B2C business. But most people knew us as the online delivery company. You have Urban Fetch hats, you know, deliver ice cream within an hour and all that kind of stuff. And of course, that's not a profitable business. But what could have been a very profitable business and what a lot of people today have seen is that if you can nail the third-party last-mile logistics, that infrastructure and ecosystem is wanted by a lot of people. Yeah. So what happened with the business? So business shut down. It was kind of a victim of the tech crash. And we actually had our S1 that was about to file with Deutsche Bank. And so we had all that that stuff going on there. And, and we actually had, uh, prior to that, another competitor try to buy us out. And this was you know halfway through that journey. So one year later after starting it. And, and this is another lesson in, in terms of lack of alignment. And you kind of all these things come back to everything I'm doing today. But the venture capitalists saw the exit, which would have been, you know, a pretty big exit. It was, a, it, was a, it was a multiple hundred million dollar kind of exit for a company we started a year earlier. It would have been life changing for us at the time. And venture capitalists were like, look, you know, that's good. But, you know, we kind of need more. We're like, more? <laughs> like, we're value investing guys. What, 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 what do you mean more? And like, well, yeah, but, you know, our model is we have a bunch of companies, you know, 80, 90 percent of them are going to be zeros. So we need the kind of one or two to work to work. So we think this is the one that can really work. So let's keep going. And, you know, at this point, we're now, I don't know, late 20s, standing up and pounding the table to kind of a, a seasoned venture veteran was 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 something we hadn't done before. And we, in, in, in hindsight, obviously, we should have. So that was the experience there. At the time, you had this experience from your hedge fund of investing world changing in a way you couldn't anticipate. Did you have that value lens during the dot-com bubble saying, you know, we really probably should exit before something happens. The whole reason we were sprinting to that S1 from our perspective was, and the whole reason why we, and again, we should have pounded the table, but the whole reason we were like, hey, look, this is a good sell. This is a huge exit is because fundamentally it was, we were long growth for the first time in our life and it felt uncomfortable. And so we wanted to at least be neutral growth. And that meant to us, how do we exit this? How do we, how do we get out of this? And close. Close, but no until cigar. that S one, it just time ran out. Capital markets closed. Time ran out. March two thousand happened, yeah. and then all all of a sudden, it was it was a whole different world. Okay, whole different so, world. So, what's the next adventure after that? So, the next adventure was I was in London, and was approached by the Carlyle Group, and they had a portfolio of tech investments, and like all those groups, some were good, some were bad. And they said, look, we think there's one company that can help us with. Will you consider being interim CEO? And if it works, you'll get a bunch of equity. And at the time, I I kind of thought about different things and said, you know what? I'm here in London. It sounds like an interesting opportunity. I really enjoyed getting to know the Carlisle guys. Right? I mean, what a fascinating organization. And you think about where they've come from there. It opened my eyes, you know, because you get invited as, as one of their CEOs to their CEO conference with real CEOs of real companies. And, and you get to see like, wow, these guys are approaching investing in a whole different way. And that really opened my eyes to like long duration, illiquid private equity investing and kind of seeing some of the, the ways they approach that and the ways they dealt with, with company management, which I, I still hold dear. So, ran what the company. Some, and what were some of those key lessons? I was surprised. Coming, finance guy, it's transactional. 
this is expensive to that. This dog looks cheap to that dog, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, how do you arbitrage that? And, and these guys are like, um, okay, well, this is a good investment, but how can we actually affect change? How do we make a difference? And like, right, remember those guys early on, and they've done it amazingly, brought in kind of incredibly high level politicians, business people. So like if they're you know, getting a company to expand into China, like we'll make a call. We're actually add value as an investor. You know, if you're going to do this strategy in Southeast Asia, we've got these kinds of connections, you know, really, really thoughtful adding value. And that, that was like, wow, you know, you can actually kind of move the spread in your favor. <laughs> yeah, right. that's kind of cool. <laughs> so that was interesting. And that company ultimately got sold to VeriSign, who was the big player in that space. And that was the first time I took a pause in life and, and really thought about what I wanted to do next. How old were you then? This is like 2001, 2002. So Early I'm like 30s. 30. Yeah, I, I, I'm just getting married at that point. Yeah. Worked out a ton. You know, I was doing a lot of triathlons back then. And, and so, yeah, nothing to do. So I could do two a days and enjoy it and not, yeah. not feel guilty. So what did you learn about yourself during that pause? I learned what I wanted to do the rest of my life. Right. Because at this point, if you think about my background, fixed income trader, hedge fund quant, VC startup, turnaround kind of, you know, company CEO in the tech space. I spent a lot of time talking to people, thinking over these long runs and bike rides, like, what do I like doing? And I realized that the widget I loved was investing. Like I loved running companies. I, I love motivating them. And I do that here. And I, and I love building cultures and, and, and processes. But the widget of, of what you're manufacturing in terms of investments was, you know, it goes all the way back to kind of my, my early days in college, right? What kind of got me excited to explore an industry and decided that point that I, I really wanted to get back into investing. And so how'd that play out? So got married in Italy and had a bunch of my friends come out and Pete Muller came out to that wedding as well. And he's like, so what do you, what do you do next? I said, you know, I'm not sure. Not sure. I'm taking some time. Um, at the time, I was talking to hedge funds, private equity funds, fund of funds. I was talking to everyone. It was, it was great because I had time. I could just go around and, yeah. and, and meet folks. And he's like, look, um, let me just put something in your head. I would love to work together with you. And I said, really? Why? <laughs> <laughs> and this is an important lesson that I'll always remember. He said, the way you dealt with a bad time, the closure of our hedge fund, I was impressed by. And it really spoke true to your character about calling aggressively when times are bad. And I thought to myself, well, isn't that kind of what everyone does? And, and you know, he was like, look, you'd be surprised how many people kind of just curl up in a ball and don't want to deal with it. And, and, and I just felt like if I was on the other side, not that necessarily there was anything to do about it, right? There, it was such a quick, violent kind of shift in, in, when long-term capital is blowing up. But I, but I think being proactive has been a really important lesson, kind of like a life lesson, right? Teach my kids that. Teach my business partners that. So that little action was the reason why Pete said, hey, let's do something again. And then that was kind of the, the genesis of, of me setting up this family office. And then that became the core of Chalkstream. And, and, and from then on, we kind of, we've built it up. So it's probably helpful to just mention who Pete is. Pete's a musician. <laughs> That's true. He'll thank me a lot for saying that. You know, so Pete is a multifaceted, talented person. I think most people know him, certainly on, in the finance community, is, is one of the greatest quant investors of all time. He, he runs a hedge fund called PDT Partners. It was originally inside of Morgan Stanley for about 20 years. And they spun out about five years ago. And then they run one of the best Stadar uh, funds in the world. He's 
got a lot of talents. He's a musician. He's a very accomplished poker player. He has his own crossword puzzle that he does that attracts, you know, some of the the world's best. He's written for the New York Times crossword. You know, he's, he's, he's an interesting guy, not only a business partner, but a dear friend. So as you start, you come together, starting with Pete's family office, you've had all these different experiences. He has his quantitative lens on investing. How do you bring those beliefs together and decide how you're going to move forward? So we, we went away for a one-week offsite. And before that offsite, he's like, I'd like you to read a book. I'm like, okay. He's going to have me read a book on statistics, on game theory, on beat the whatever it is, right? I mean, that, that's what I'm bracing for. He's like, I want you to read Lowenstein's book on, on Buffett, The Making of an American Capitalist. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. And talk about page turners. What a great book. Yeah. So I read the book and he's a big surfer. So we, we, we meet in Hawaii for our offsite and he's like, what'd you, what'd you learn about the book? What'd you glean from that? I said, thank you for recommending the book. It's a great book. Obviously what an amazing investor. And I said, for me, and I underlined certain things in, in the book, this guy bets on people and Pete's like, bingo. Like, bingo. Like, you bet on very statistical things. You know, he's like, not true. Like, I bet on people here at PDT. You know, we have an amazing team, amazing culture. I think we should build an investment firm that is built around people. People that you bet on internally at the firm and the people that you partner with. And I thought that was such an interesting comment coming from a person who's an applied math guy who has built his career and success on that, to have that perspective. And it just shows the kind of the type of person he is, multifaceted and deep. And for me, that was kind of an eye opener. And so that was the blueprint. And we started mapping out what we were going to do and that we wanted to be long tail. I kind of talked about my kind of truisms that I learned about like, you know, the thing I want is long duration capital, being opportunistic, concentrating our bets, being able to play offense when others are playing defense because I'd been on the opposite side of that a couple of times. Yeah. And that was the formation. So let's walk through some of those. You mentioned long tails. A lot of traditional thinking of asset allocation, owning assets. In some sense, people can get short the tails pretty easily. So what was the construct that you said, okay, we now have a pool of capital. What are the objectives and how are you going to achieve them? So we really wanted at the beginning, and I I think this DNA has stayed with us the whole time. We really wanted to build something that was focused on long-term compounding. And that's obviously what a lot of people focus on. But we wanted to do it in a way that was focused on areas that were less competitive, that were niche and where we could concentrate our bets. And so we actually took the opposite of an asset allocation framework. And, and we had the view at the time. And it turned out that it was even more extreme than we expected, that too much money would flood into the space that historical correlations would be useful but dangerous to rely on too much. And if you think about asset allocation, right, you're relying on your forecasts of volatility, expected returns, and correlations. And if you believe that there are some distortions to that because of capital flows, or in the case of where we are today, potentially, with kind of liquidity and QE, does the fact that these asset classes are correlated to this way in this environment means that they'll be correlated that way going forward? Right. So our plan and our philosophy, and it's still a core part of what we do, is well, how do we focus on things that 
have an inherent lack of correlation to a lot of those things? And how do we focus on things that could have long tails? And that could be the result of a dislocation. That could be the result of something that's misunderstood and kind of build a firm around that. And, and so it was, it was the opposite of, okay, we're going to fill this bucket with that, this bucket with that. It was like a blank slate of, okay, if you've got a long-term horizon and compound, and most of our investors that came in after Pete were people like Pete, you know, senior partners with big hedge funds and, and private equity businesses. And most people like that have access to what we call mainstream alternative strategies. So how can we create something that's truly differentiated and, and allows us to go deep in a few things and make those bets and try and find those asymmetric bets when they're there? And there's been some already in kind of, you know, since we've been around since 2004. So that, that was really the beginning of, of our framework. So when you start with that as a strategy, we could probably both agree that when you find one of these opportunities, they tend to be capacity constrained. And you've got a nice sized balance sheet just from, from Pete's family office money. Do you just do a single family office or put your money and his money together? Or, you know, you mentioned some other partners that have come in. How do you think about the investing piece versus the business? Very early on, and this came from Pete as much as it did from me, he felt that it was going to be important for us to take another capital. Why is that? His point, and I think it's it's really rings true to me today, is that there's a certain energy that needs to be associated with an organization to attract exceptional people. And yes, you can get that in single family offices. And I know a lot of single family offices that have that energy and feeling, but not most. And I think a big part of it is that when people are, are joining something, it's, it's not just that they want to be something that can be massive, right? Because I've told everyone here, like our job, we're not going to be a very large asset management firm. We're going to be a boutique firm that does a few things very well. And if we do that well over a long period of time, I think it's going to work well for our investors and work well for us. But I, I think there is a different kind of energy and focus that comes with different opinions and views that come with, with other investors. And Pete identified it early, and, and I agreed with them, and, and that was always the plan from day one, was, was to take in some outside capital. Okay. So you mentioned that you're going to be focused on a couple things that you want to do really well. So what are those things? So we like concentrating our bets. And if you look at diversification, that's obviously hugely important. But you know, if you look at a portfolio like ours, it has uh, concentrated themes, but underlying those themes has a lot of positions kind of long and short or, or swaps and hedges and whatnot. But when you kind of dissect return drivers, and if you become overly diversified, all of a sudden, it really gets hard to allow those asymmetric bets to be meaningful. And we continue to concentrate our portfolio, even today. And, and what I, does concentration <clears throat> mean? Like how many themes or positions or however you think about it? There's probably only a handful of tactical themes in our portfolio today. There's things like Japan. There's things like Korea. There's things like electricity, power trading. There are kind of big themes in our portfolio. And the balance is a concentrated portfolio of low net, low beta strategies that we think still have some alpha. And usually to your point about capacity constraints, a lot of them can't take a lot of money. Right, so that side of our business is not one that can can scale infinitely for sure because we're in small cap regional banks, right? And that that's a limited strategy. Yeah. So that's kind of when we think about concentrating and in, in our themes, there may only be a couple themes at any given time that that are meaningful in our portfolio. But if you look at Japan, Korea, and increasingly power as a percentage of our risk in our portfolio, that's probably forty percent of our risk. You know, I mean, there's a lot of positions underneath them, but, but those are those are pretty yeah. big thematic bets in our portfolio. So let's break down the process. You start with, you want to be concentrated. 
How do you come up with the themes? So this is a blessing and a curse. We have an incredibly flexible mandate. We can invest direct, we can invest in funds, we can seed funds, we can invest in private equity and real estate. So that's great, but that's dangerous. How do you make sure that you're not the chump at the table in that particular place that you're playing in? So our whole process and kind of our whole organization is structured around the flexibility to be agnostic to where we want to play. So that means from an operational, from a trading, from a legal perspective, we're able to kind of huddle quickly and SWAT team and, and, and kind of get involved, whether it's in different jurisdictions or geographies. But from a, from a process perspective, we look at a lot of things. And I think having that kind of asset class valuation framework to be able to kind of look at things and, and kind of, if you think about it, roughly dissect things down into an unlevered yield, right? You can do that for an equity, you can do that for a cap rate, you can do that for direct lending, obviously. And you compare these things. And all, all we're trying to do is look for extremes. And, and those extremes point us in places where we think either can be expensive or, or cheap. And then we do deep dives. And so for us, the process is all about one or two deep dives per year, which may or may not result in something. And if it doesn't, we shelve it and maybe it comes back you know, down the road. You know, that happened to us in kind of the healthcare royalty space where we spent a tremendous amount of time in that space about 10 years ago and then decided to seed a group a handful of years ago in that space. So, so sometimes you dust off that, that research and it comes back. But we want to only play in places where we feel that we can put our hand in our heart and feel really proud about the work we've done. Uh, and so what does that mean? That means that there's a lot of places where people say, hey, what do you think about this? And say, no idea. You know, I did three meetings on that, you know, over the last 10 years. I, I can't give any kind of reasonable opinion. But but if there's a space that we've done a deep dive in, I feel very comfortable that that we will have a very good understanding. And our goal is when we go deep in this space, that, that we'll be one of the top allocators or partners in that space. Yeah. And that's why we don't do many of them. So let's grab Japan as an example. What does that deep dive look like? You know, where'd you start and where'd you get to? So... It looks like the bags under my eyes because I just flew, flew back from, <laughs> from Japan last week. And we're here in, in September, and it's been my fifth trip this year to Japan. So we feel like there's really no substitute for, for being on the ground. We travel a lot. Our research team does. There's been two other folks on, on our research team that have spent as much time with me on separate trips to Japan. But kind of going back in time, I first started doing my, my trips to Japan when we started Chalk Train. And that was the beginning of the U.S. wave of activists that were coming in Japan. We looked at it and said, interesting stuff. And our gut originally was, we can run a screen on all these net cash companies. Why don't we just buy all 350? Going back to my value days. These are, these are true value names, like net cash companies. And hold them. And over time, probably does okay. During tough periods, it probably is okay as well. You probably lose some money, but you know probably not as much as, as the markets. So that was the theory, at least. That proved out in 2008. And so that was our working model. So we're flexible and agnostic to whether we do things direct or indirect. And, and as we started studying it more, and when we started meeting some of the, at the time, friendly activists, we changed our tune. And we thought that, wow, on a concentrated portfolio, not all 350, but on a subset of those, we think there's guys that can can get in there and have kind of a rifle shot on on getting a few companies to change, buy back shares, issue dividends, sell non-core assets. These companies have so much low-hanging fruit on what can be done. We thought that that was a better model. We thought that the fees that we would pay to capture that alpha would would be worth it. We dipped our toes into it. We made a couple small allocations into a couple activist managers, and. 
shortly thereafter, 2008 happened, and we saw that wow, pretty defensive. You know, Japan topics is down 44 percent. You know, on average, these guys were down 16, 17 percent. Net cash companies, you know, when, when your cash starts trading and discount to cash, you kind of buy back shares. But the more telling thing was, and this today is still why we're so involved in Japan, was after that. So post 2008, the rest of the world flies, U.S., Europe, etc. Japan was flat for four years. Yeah, did nothing. And this is one where we really saw the value of activism in Japan done in a very particular way, which was friendly, constructive. And we saw that that created really good alpha. So to us, that was even more impressive than being defensive in 2008 was creating returns in a period where the markets were flat. And after that, that period, that takes us to around 2011, a lot of people think that our big move in Japan was, hey, Abenomics, let's go do the, the macro play in Japan. And it just happened to coincide with that, but it really was the conclusion of our belief that activism could work in Japan and would continue to work. And we saw examples of that. And that was what we were waiting for to get confirmation that we should go big. And getting back to concentration, that's when we really started scaling it up. So what year did that start scaling? 2011 and 12. Yeah. And still today, it's a big position. Big, big yeah. bet for us. Okay. Big bet for us. When you start sourcing managers, when you decide, okay, we have a model we think is better than just what we can do here. Do you generally look for English speaking managers in Japan? Ideally, but there's really not many. And most parts we have speak great English and some of them speak okay English. And, and I think even more important than the language is being culturally sensitive and that's taken some time and we've made some mistakes. And is that you being sensitive to their culture? You're saying the way they're approaching companies being culturally sensitive? Us to them. Us to them. What does that mean? Yeah, we've seen this in Japan. We've seen this in Korea and it's a different culture. So I'm talking to you. I want to invest in your fund, Ted. And we have an open dialogue on what I'm happy about, what I'm not happy about and kind of what I'm concerned about. And, and it's taken in a very business-like, it's not a personal thing. It's just about, hey, look, here's my issues, your strategy, and let's have a discussion and we'll decide whether they get there or not. And you can eventually get there in Japan and Korea. Of course, they want that feedback. But if you lead off with that, it gets personal. So I think the nuance on understanding that, let's speak our truth, but let's do it in a way that's culturally sensitive. Let's repeat it. Let's repeat it again. And even then, we're probably only get to 50%. We've learned through some, some experiences where we've had to shift our attitudes. And I think part of why ultimately I think we're going to be successful in Japan and Korea is the partnerships we've built and the ability for us to kind of really work with these people well. And, and these cultures are very much about avoiding short-term conflict. And sometimes that means that you end up with bigger long-term conflicts. And so, okay, so what do you do with that information? If I know you're going to be willing to avoid short-term conflict, maybe try to appease me in the short term, it's a different way on how I approach building a partnership with you. So that's what I mean. It's things like that and things about just the kind of cadence and pace on how you build a relationship and all those things. Yeah. Are you approaching this just from the perspective of an LP in someone else's fund? Our investments in Japan span investments in funds. We have some interest in funds. We have CDS positions in Japan. That's a whole nother bet where we think there's these massively levered companies that are trading at ridiculously tight CDS levels that we think are in industries that are in secular decline. And so going back to that Lehman certificate on, on the back of my wall here, Lehman traded at 17 basis points. 
And just as an overarching theme, anytime a highly levered thing trades anywhere in that zip code, I think he just, I think he puts them on. <laughs> um, and in Japan, there's a few of those things. Do you think of that as one strategy where you've we got do. the activists and then you've got the CDS as a hedge? We do. And this is an important point. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. We started the equities and it wasn't like we said, hey, let's find a hedge for Japan. But we often do that. But in this case, we thought that the margin of safety in the equities was such that we're willing to take beta. And, you know, we usually don't take beta. So for us to take a beta bet somewhere has to be something pretty extreme, like net cash companies. Yeah. That being said, we saw this. And, and this really came about from a different angle, which was thinking about a tail hedge on China. And it was like, OK, not that we have much China exposure. But if China really hard lands, like it probably means some some bad things for the markets. And by association, going back to my experience in long-term capital, it probably means there could be some potential knock-on effects in other markets. And maybe that affects some of the stuff we own. So it started off as an innocent discussion on what are some good tail hedges on China. And we did some in Australian receiver swaptions, but that played out. And we're kind of looking for other things. And one of our credit managers that we seeded said, you know, have you thought about Japanese CDS as a hedge of China? We're like, no. So they started describing this thesis about these massively levered companies that were in things like steel and shipping and basic commodities that had levered a bunch to be able to compete with Chinese companies, which is which is a, a bad game, right? When you have no energy in Japan and Chinese companies have very little environmental kind of you know kind of issues to deal with, so that they can create a whole different business. And so that's when we started looking at it. And and then when we decided when we were scaling up the equity side of Japan at the same time, we said, wow, if we pair this together, it's more like a long vol trade on Japan, right? Because if you take the extremities. Take Japanese equities going up 30% a year for the next 10 years. Fantastic, right? Absolutely. So maybe we catch the beta. Hopefully we, we create some alpha to that, but it's not going to be bad. Right. Japanese equities down 40%. China hard landing. The world ends. Like we're levered about four times short, notional short on, on CDS. That's going to be pretty good. You know, arguably, maybe even a better PL outcome than yeah. the flip side. So it reminds us a lot of, of short subprime, which is one of our big thematic kind of asymmetric exposures you know, back in the day. But we've also learned that it goes tighter for a long time. And we're kind of in that phase right now. For, since Abenomics and negative interest rates, these companies that are highly levered and kind of fundamentals are deteriorating their spreads are tightening into that deterioration yeah. for, for other reasons. Good news is that we're able to buy this stuff at really cheap spreads right now, and we're going to hold it. Great. Well, let's, let's pull on one more. What's your either the thing you've most recently dove into or the, the longest lasting one? I'll focus on, on one of the more recent ones, which has been electricity trading and power trading. And this is a space that we think fits a lot of our criteria. We look at everything from, we have this kind of laminate card philosophy, which is like this sense of, can you put your investment philosophy on a laminate card? And we heard it from one of our offsite coaches on this entrepreneur who had this laminate card on values on, on companies that he liked. So for us, it's a pretty simple process. And, and it's basically space, team, and alignment. So the first thing is space. Like, what do we like on spaces? And for us, we like spaces that are either capacity constrained because it keeps away the big boys, complicated, heavily retail focused 
like regional banks or MLPs, which when they dominate those markets, they tend to exacerbate things and you can you know kind of be on the other side of that, so to speak. So space is important to us. And that's why Korea, Japan, like all these things come from a big picture perspective important. And, th- and then kind of the next thing is the team. And is the team a local player? Is it us doing CDS? Is it some combination thereof? Then the final thing is the alignment. How do we structure something that is truly in the spirit of doing this for, for multiple years. So pulling it back to the electricity question and comment on, on where are we putting some of our efforts, from a space perspective, it's got a lot of those qualities. Most of the people, the participants, and I'm talking things like day ahead markets, FTR markets, price of power on the different regional exchanges, most of them are public utilities or hedgers, not investment folks. So that's one. Two, the space has a ton of dispersion. Right? When you think about creating alpha and you think about what you want, you want a lot of dispersion because we're effectively trying to make markets in these spaces. So it takes us, parks us back to like my Sakana days into the, the early days of, of market making in, in industries, early days of HFT. So you want a lot of dispersion and there's a ton of dispersion, right? Because you've got weather changing. So you'll get heat spikes and all of a sudden everyone's you know jacking up their AC. We had that a couple of weeks ago. You have renewable disruption, which creates, oh my God, Battery storage is going to make it unnecessary to produce energy. Then all of a sudden, oh, what? That's 10 years away, right? And so you get these kind of, you know, kind of, it's windy today. That creates a lot of energy. Oh, there's no wind, right? So there's all these things uh, going on that create this this dispersion. And when you think about trying to be in markets where there's a lot of dispersion, if you approach it like a market maker, that's exciting. And so for us, it, it really has been about partnering with folks that really behave like market makers and trying to bring quantitative methods to some of these spaces and structuring alignment. And some of them are just structured as companies. They're really not funds where we can have a long-term play. So I, I hope and suspect that this will be a place that we, we continue to put capital to work. And, and if I had my druthers, it'd be a, a pretty significant part of our portfolio. And we're starting to get there. And is the limiting factor finding the team in alignment? You know, we've canvassed the space and we'll attend power conferences, we'll be all over the world trying to meet different folks. And so, yeah, I think the limiting factor is that there aren't that many teams out there. We've probably met with 60 or 70 or so, but most of them are kind of small ex-utility traders from public utility or from an energy trading shop and and to find groups that we can partner with to do it in, in kind of an institutional long-term approach is, has been harder. But Asset class is growing. It's happening in Latin America, in Europe, in Asia. So, so we, we basically want a front row seat into this asset class. We think there's a lot of things to do in, in kind of the power and energy ecosystem. And so on that whole concept of our laminate card, we want to have teams and, and partnerships that are aligned with us. And we may own some of these businesses to really capitalize on, on some of the things that we think are developing over the next you know, 10, 20 years. So if you take a step back, you've got a Japan opportunity set electricity trading, you mentioned Korea, you said something about China rolling over. How do you think about portfolio construction? I think we start first with how do we create a low beta core portfolio that allows us to be patient? So if you think about, in some ways, how we think about ourselves, we're trying to combine the best attributes of a multi-strategy hedge fund, a fund of funds, and a private equity fund. And they all have all got their pluses and minuses, right? So we want to have the direct trading capabilities and infrastructure to, to go quickly. We want to have the access to information and experts that you get from, from a fund of funds kind of flow. And it's, it's fascinating to say we can, we can go anywhere and people want to talk to us. And they really want to tell us their best idea. And that's fun. 
And then we have the ability to take really long-term bets. And so even if we're seeding people, we can provide working capital, which is a little different. We can provide LP capital. We can say, we can start with a question, Mrs. Manager, what do you want? Not like, here's a prepackaged program on how we seed people. So getting back to your, your question, we want to start with building a portfolio that gives us the time to be patient with our research and with our tactical bets and some of our longer term bets. And, and that in of itself is not easy. And so we've really gravitated more and more towards things that have limited capacity, things like I mentioned that may be kind of in the small cap regional bank space, that can be in the the healthcare space. We have a healthcare investment business that we seeded that works out of our offices, Eversept, that is an exceptional team. Cam and, and his crew are doing some really amazing things in that space. And so finding those are, are hard, but when you put them together, that part of our portfolio has probably been... 0.1 beta or so to the S&P over the last five, six years with pretty consistent alpha. And so that allows us the patience to not feel like we're forcing it. And then from time to time, when we find a theme or an area that we want to get more involved in, we can really do the deep dive. Yeah. So for us, it really starts with how do you build something that gives you the patience to be patient? Yeah. And not force the kind of big bets, not force the tactical bets, right? Because if we were building a whole organization that was just like, okay, we've got to find the next thing, got to find the next thing, you'll find the next thing. Right. <laughs> and maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. But if you have the patience on worst case, we've built this low beta portfolio that has pretty good returns, that's pretty good. And is that the modus operandi in the sense that most of the time when people dive in to try to find a low beta alpha driven opportunity, they might marry it with low cost beta. So you start talking about Buffett and people, which is true, but there's also a, hey, own U.S. equities and long-term compound and be patient in that way. So how do you think about the low-cost beta piece, and are you foregoing that on purpose? We're foregoing it on purpose. I, I think it's actually fantastic, and people should do that. We don't think we add value for providing other people. And I think people know when they come to us, everyone's got plenty of beta in their portfolio, either directly or indirectly. If you work in finance in New York City and, and you have zero equities, you're long equities. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. If, if you're in the hedge fund industry, private equity industry, you have beta, the S&P. And one of the charts I have on my desk is a graph of, of 10-year yields going back 40 years. And the reason I keep it there is that it looks like a ski slope. Right. It goes from 14% down to where it is today. And there's been some gyrations, but it's it's basically, I say this to all my contemporaries, like none of us are as good as we think we are. We've been the beneficiaries of, you know, so if you think about hedge funds, equities, real estate, private equity, direct line, you know, if that chart didn't look like that, yeah. And sure, some people have done better than others in capturing benefits from that, but what if it doesn't look like that going forward? And, and so for us, we don't really feel like we can add much value by providing beta to investors. And we think that they have it already. And what we want to do is provide them with something different sure. and more tactical. And for your own capital, do you want to own the beta? Or you just say, look, I, I'm okay. I, I, I live in New York City. I'm implicitly owning the beta because I own my apartment or whatever it is. I'm a little bit more like that. And we do have a little beta. We do have some beta in portfolio. We have it in Japan. We have it in Korea and things right. like that. And so like, I definitely have indirect beta and I have some direct beta bets, but the direct beta bets in our portfolio are very, very intentional. Yeah. But 
for my friends, you know, I'm sure you get this all the time. You show up at a cocktail party and your aunt says, you know, Ted, you know, how, how should I invest? And I think the low cost index stuff for majority people makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And, and I, I, don't, I don't think beta is bad. I think beta is good. I mean, generally, I think there is a, an expected return expected from that. And there will be periods when it's higher and lower. But in general, if you have a long term view, I think equities is a good thing to own. Yeah. With your background and Pete's background, understanding deeply what's happening in spreads and quantitative investing. What's your perspective on active equity investing, whether it's long only or long short hedge funds, this general perspective, given what you know about what's happening in the quantitative world? You know, it's a good question. And I know you've thought deeply about this topic and there's a big shift going on. There's the quantification of almost everything. There's the big data of almost everything. Passive is really trounced a lot of active for for many, many years. And just taking the hedge fund space and going back to our origins, you know, we have this view there's going to be a lot of money flooding in. It, it dwarfed what we expected by a factor of five. And so it's really hard to create a lot of active alpha when there's that much money in the space and when a lot of the similar approaches we're now almost on third generation, meaning like some of the early hedge fund folks have spun off and then there's been spinoffs of those folks, maybe in fourth generation, just saying it out loud. So the techniques are there. The process is, is there. And there will always be people that are good at active management. And, and I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, we're a believer. We're a little bit more skeptical in places where there's a lot of capital. That's where in places like Korea, where it's a huge equity market and you can count the number of good hedge funds on one hand. So we think it's a secular play. That's why we, we built a business there, hedge fund business there, and we expect to be there indefinitely. In, in some of the other spaces, it's getting harder and harder to create alpha. And so, so I don't think active is dead. And I think that it ties into kind of value versus growth. It ties into technology disruption. It ties into a lot of things. And some of these things will correct at some point, I'm sure, right? Who knows when? Maybe it's 10 years from now. You know, maybe it's 20, maybe it's five years from now. But so I think that the passive versus active debate, it's actually always been here. Right back to when Vanguard started saying let's let's all index. So it's it's not a new concept. I, I think it's capturing a lot of mindshare because people are seeing the effects of quant. And, and something that has changed is if you look at the percentage of trading that is done in the hands of machines, it's pretty big. Yeah, it's pretty big. So that certainly is a factor that is different. And we've tried to capture that in certain ways through certain investments. But, you know, active's not dead. It's just that where do you want to choose to amplify your active bets? And, and to my point earlier about trying to be really intentional about our, our beta bets, you know, we're trying to focus on spaces where we think we have a reasonable chance of, of, of active management creating alpha. Yeah. I want to circle back on one one last point before we turn to some closing questions, and, and that's on culture and organization. And you mentioned how important that is to Peter, how important it is to you. How do you do it? I actually spend a lot of time on this stuff. And I think some of the benefits of my different experiences in dealing with different people have really focused my attention on this concept. And, and for me, one of the great joys of building a firm like Chalkstream is being able to define your culture and to surround yourself with amazing partners and team members that reinforce the culture and actually make it better. And there were some simple things that we started with at the very beginning, which is like no asshole policy, right? Life's too short. 
then it, it's kind of evolved over the years to, to things like, you know, how do you really focus on collaboration? How do you focus on a learning organization? And so we, we do a lot of, st- we just came back from our offsite, actually. We do an offsite every year. We take the whole company and we go somewhere for three days. And we're not allowed to talk about anything that is in the near term. And the theme of the offsites is the same every year, which is in five years from now, if we're looking back, what do we wish we would have started doing and today? And what do we wish we would have stopped doing? And if you go back through all of our offsites and see kind of how the firm has pivoted over time, same DNA, same philosophy, same types of people, the things we're doing are different in terms of you know, creating specific co-investments, whether it's running Japan and Korea, whether it's building more permanent capital businesses, which we're doing in a few places. All those things have come out when you have the mindset and time to think differently. And so culture to me is, is a combination of, of how do you create the space to dream and to think? And that's things like offsites. It's things like we have strategy sessions once a quarter where we, we, we talk about a lot of different things that aren't related to kind of short-term goals. It's stuff about I'm a big believer in, in kind of the mind-body connection. We spend a lot of time internally thinking about how do you manage your energy and how do you think about your workflow throughout a day? And I really believe that if your body's in better shape, your mind will be in better shape. We spend a lot of time on feedback, on how to give feedback. We'll actually do practice sessions where we'll have to give feedback to each other like in kind of a speed dating sense. And, and the whole purpose of that is, is when you're trying to run an organization with high achievers, you know, how do you cut through and get to the issues in a way that's, you know, going back to my Japan point, not personal, that is focused on the task at hand. Right. So step one is you build kick-ass relationships. So we pay for people to go out to dinners and lunches together. We highly encourage that. We say, we'll pick up the bill. Go for it. Right. Because if you have better understanding and respect for each other, when I come to you, Ted, and say, Ted, are you open to feedback? And you say, yes, because we just had an amazing meal last week. And I said, you know what? You know, this thing you did in that meeting, I think it really rubbed some people the wrong way for X, Y, Z reasons. And the reason I'm mentioning it to you is not because you're not a bad person. You're a good person, you know, but it really slowed down people's momentum on this for X, Y, Z reasons. And now you're like, wow, thank you. I really appreciate that. And, and, and you know, to us, we say you know, feedback is a gift. You're actually giving someone a gift. And so all these things are not technical, right? They're not necessarily process oriented. But I, I, I do think they're really important culture points on, on how do you create an organization that is able to adapt quickly to a changing environment. And part of that is, is being able to correct quickly. And that starts with internal. And so all the stuff we do on culture, whether it's feedback, whether it's on mind-body, whether it's on focusing on the long-term, all these kinds of things, we try to port that and export that to our partners. And so we've had offsites, and, and we've run them for a lot of our partner groups and for some of the groups we've seated. And to me, I get the same reaction every time. Before I go to these things, I'm like, God, are people going to think this is hokey? Or are they going to think it's a waste of time? But this is one thing we've done well. The feedback we get is like, thank you so much. You know, gratitude. Like, this has been amazing. And we, we, I really think you need to get into a different physical space to, to think like that. And I think you need to have a different type of agenda. I think you need to have a different kind of energy flow. So when we think about culture, it's not, you see the kind of values on the wall there and, and, and kind of speaking up and like, you know, learn from your mistakes and, and all these kinds of things. But, but at the essence, it's how do you create an organization that really respects each other and respects each other to ask a difficult question, to be unreasonable, but in a way that's kind, that's empathetic, that is not personal. And that's really hard to do. Right? It's a fine line. 
right? And we're all running quickly, and sometimes I'm running out the door on the way to Japan. I'm like, and then all of a sudden, I go, shoot, you know, I didn't say that the right way, you know? And I'll get called out too. I solicit a ton of feedback. So we spend a lot of time on this stuff. And sometimes you're like, oh my God, we got to prepare for that 360 review again. It's, a, it's, it's, you know, a week of work. But the stuff that comes out of it is really valuable. Anyway, for us, I think culture is essential for any organization. And, and actually, I think in finance, it's, it's one area where people don't focus enough on. All right. Let's turn to some closing questions. Andrew, what is your favorite talent or hobby? Either something you have today or something from way back. I named the firm Chalkstream because I love fly fishing. And I learned how to fly fish when I was in London on the chalk streams in England. And so specifically within the fly fishing world, I love saltwater fly fishing for permit, tarpon, and bonefish. And since there's not many people in the world that do that, I'm actually pretty good. <laughs> people are like, wow, you can catch a permit on a fly. I'm like, yeah, but there's maybe 50 of us that are freaks and try to do that every year. So, you know, yes, on an absolute number, I'm, I'm, I'm up there, but there's not many of us. Do you have um, a particular spot that's your favorite place to go? I think the Keys, I've done fly fishing all over the world. The Keys uh, in particular, it's the best for specifically for permit and tarpon. It's the best. Fantastic. All right. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? One of the pet peeves is deriving confirmation from others or association. And we've made that mistake before. We said, oh, wow, like, you know, all these smart people are investing in this, like, you know, must be good. And maybe on the margin, you kind of relax your standards a little bit. And, you know, if I go back and think about all of our greatest hits, you know, I don't think there was one that was a consensus, like, yeah, that feels good around the board kind of investment. It was always like, there was always some twist, some difficulty, like even short subprime, like, you remember, like everyone was talking about the government buying every single mortgage in America. So therefore maybe it doesn't work. So you go through some late night sweats on, on all those things, but the ones where you kind of feel like, oh, you know, it's fine. Like, you know, yeah, they did it. I mean, it must be great. That's one of my pet peeves. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? So I had two very different parents. My mom was an artist and my dad is an engineer, a PhD, a structural engineer. So very different lessons. Uh, my mom was taking me to art museums with her kind of very colorful artistic friends, very free loving, very alternative culture. My dad, you know, who, who had come from Taiwan to get his PhD in, in, in St. Louis, very straight arrow and both very different qualities. So my mom taught me the importance of connecting with people. And, and I think all this stuff on culture, I mean, the other day, we're, you know, we're humans, we're here for the journey. You know, how do we really connect at, at a level? She was just amazing at that. And my dad's the most honest person I've ever met. And so when there's ever been any doubt on, on what the right thing to do is, I kind of think, what would he do? And, and he's just one of these different era kind of integrity type people. That's great. What information do you read that you get a lot out of that other people might not know about? You know, there's a the standard issue stuff. Like, I think The Economist is amazing. But one thing that I really enjoy doing is reading newspapers from different countries. It all started because, you know, I'll be traveling and I'll be in this airport or that airport. And you're like, instead of picking up The New York Times or the FT that's there, which I love, you know, and I read them every day. But then you pick up the China Daily or you pick up the Nikkei or you pick up the India Times. There's always a half-life when, and since I'm in Asia so much these days, it stays with me that in the mornings, I'll just load up their, their local newspapers. And it's a different perspective. It really is. You, you have the same event happening. 
Moon's meeting with on to talk about North Korea, right? And then you hear kind of how the pundits here talk about it, and you, you kind of get a perspective on on how they think about it there. And so it's it's kind of eye opening, and I think it just broadens out the perspective that our perspective here is important, obviously, and we live here. But but there's a different perspective, and so I, I think that's that's been helpful. If you could meet one person, dead or alive, shake their hand and just say thank you, who would it be and why? You know, I'm going to go back to my mom. My mom passed away when I was 16, and she left such a mark on my life. And I'd like to thank her for teaching me about how to connect with people, like what I said earlier. And I'd really like to tell her about my kids and how I see her and them. You know, they're artistic, they're people people. So there's a lot of other folks I'd love to see, but given my short time with her, that would be everything. All right, Andrew, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? You know, touching on some of the stuff when we were talking about culture, I really believe this, that the quality of your life is determined by the amount of difficult questions you're willing to have. And that goes across the board, right? That goes to your relationship with your your spouse, your kids, your teammates at the office. We talked about business partners out in Asia and, and, and how you deal with that. And, you know, I grew up in St. Louis and people are super nice and super friendly. And, it's, and, and talk about lack of conflict, right? It's all about like, you know, just super, super good people. And that, that's fantastic. It's an amazing quality. I like to surround myself with people like that. But there's another side. And so I think in my younger years, I thought that conflict was bad, like, wow, it's like, you know, I'm being difficult. Like I'm, I'm being like, you know, that guy. And what I've learned is, is particularly if, if people didn't know you and, and think that you're a reasonably good person, and I hope that's the case, who knows? <laughs> but if they think that and you bring something up to them that may even be a little bit offensive to them or a little bit shocking to them, if they're a true friend or, or a real business partner, they'll appreciate it. And I've had so much feedback the older I get from people that have said, you know, remember that conversation we had like five years ago when we were like, we just had that horrible thing happen to us and we went for a beer and you kind of you mentioned that one thing, like that really stuck with me. I'm like, why? Like uh, you kind of forget about some of the things that people remember. I really think that that's one of the big lessons I've had is that you're actually serving someone. You're actually deepening the relationship. You're actually deeply caring. It's a form of gratitude when you care enough to be difficult. And then I think the other kind of life lesson is for my first half of my career, I'd say I was so focused on time management. And it's like, I want to be first in, I want to be lost down, I want to do this, I want to do that. And now it's all about the flow and the energy. And we all have different bow rhythms. So there's certain times of the day where I reserve for deep thought stuff. And there's certain parts of the day that I reserve for just banging out emails, right? And there's certain uh, parts of the day that I reserve for talking to people, right? And I wish someone would have sat me down earlier and say, figure out your biorhythm when you're 21 and focus on those things and just own it and just be really, really firm at that vibe because like, you know, we've all seen this. Right? You at your best is is like 20 times better than you at your worst. So just figure out when those periods are. And so, so I, I think it's, a, it's more of a physical thing, but I think it, it translates into if you can improve your life 10% every day because of that, that compares pounding is, is, is really, really big. Andrews is fascinating. Thanks so much for taking the time. Ted, always enjoy our conversations. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, before you take off, I've started sending out a monthly email that shares a small selection of what caught my eye over the month. I get a lot of emails like this, and I'm sure you do too. So I'm only going to send no more than a handful of the very best things that caught my eye. 
If you'd like to receive that email, hop on my website at capitalallocatorspodcast.com and join the mailing list. 